Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is Why Is That, the podcast. Welcome back to the Why Is That podcast. If you'll humor me for a moment, I want you to imagine yourself walking down the street. It is optional whether or not you are singing do a diddy diddy dum diddy do. As you look around, you might notice the green grass or cement buildings or what have you based on the street you chose. I now want you to imagine the same walk except with one very distinct difference. This time you are the President of the United States of America. What is the difference between your two imagined walks? Perhaps in the second walk you had people running up to you asking you to kiss their babies or members of the press badgering you about this or that. Perhaps in the second walk you pictured men or women in black suits, they kind of look like the men in black, positioned along your route to ensure your safety. These brave men and women are members of the United States Secret Service, the bodyguards of the President of the United States, with the sworn duty to protect him or her and the family from all threats, foreign and domestic. The United States Secret Service are another modern example of the long line of security forces that we previously discussed in episode 29 about the Pontifical Swiss Guard. The Secret Service are very familiar to any of us who have taken the time to watch a presidential appearance on television, or to any of you who may have had the pleasure of seeing a president in person. It is common to see an agent standing at the bottom of the ramp as the president departs Air Force One, or for those of us who were alive in the 90s and got to experience Bill Clinton jogging in short shorts, the Secret Service was never far behind. However, what if I told you that to early presidents like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, or James K. Polk, the idea of a presidential guard, like the Secret Service, would seem not only ludicrous, but downright un-American. Even a wartime president like Abraham Lincoln found the idea of a full-time presidential guard to be not only unnecessary, but perhaps even undemocratic. That was the early sentiment of the United States of America, and we are going to look at how that changed and why it was that the Secret Service took up that responsibility. Before we get into the why of it all, I do want to take a moment to thank Henry from the Firestarters podcast for this episode idea. After the episode on the Pontifical Swiss Guard, Henry messaged me as he had recently listened to episode 32 of Darknet Diaries. In that episode, a carding kingpin was tracked by the Secret Service. Our listener wanted to know why the Secret Service was tasked with capturing a Russian credit card hacker. Why was the organization responsible for guarding the president also tasked with a matter of financial security? He thought it could make for an interesting episode, and after looking into it, I had to agree. So thank you, Henry, for being the inspiration of today's episode. If you ever want to suggest an episode idea, then you can let me know on Twitter slash Facebook at whyisthatpod or by email whyisthatpod at gmail.com. After you finish today's episode, I would also recommend checking out Henry's podcast, Firestarters. It is a history podcast where he and his co-host Dan dedicate each episode to telling the story behind each cultural reference in Billy Joel's seminal hit, We Didn't Start the Fire. You can find the show by searching Firestarters, one word, in your preferred podcast app, or clicking the link to their website in the episode description. Their podcast logo has the name in text in orange and yellow above a bonfire of sorts. Let me alone. Let me alone. I know where this came from. These words were shouted by President Andrew Jackson during the first known assassination attempt on a sitting president in United States history. 
The day was January 30, 1835, and President Jackson was walking back to the White House after attending the funeral of Congressman Warren Davis. A man who believed he was King Richard III had waited with two pistols for the president to pass by. He pointed the first at Jackson, pulled the trigger, the cap exploded, but the bullet was not discharged. At the sound of the gunshot, Jackson whirled around and advanced on his would-be assassin. Richard III pulled the second pistol, and once again the gun misfired. Jackson shouted the words, raised his cane, and the 67-year-old president proceeded to beat his would-be assailant upside the head with the cane until Davy Crockett and other passers-by detained the failed assassin while the president continued by carriage to the White House. The whole story of the assassination and trial is fascinating, and is one of those examples of life being stranger than fiction. However, we are not going to cover it. The important piece to note for today is how it was the president who responded with force to forestall his assailant. There were no agents surrounding the president to put their bodies on the line while the president is rushed toward a safe space while other guards tackle the assassin. In fact, it was the president himself who beat down the assassin, and it was a sitting congressman who detained the assailant while the local police were called. There were no assigned guards and no one specifically protecting the president's life. You might think that the attempt on his life would prompt more security in the White House and around the president, but you would be wrong. Visitors were still allowed entry to the White House without any security screening, and Jackson still journeyed around Washington, D.C. without a single guard. Andrew Jackson and all the presidents before him had no guard, minimal to no security, and routinely published their detailed schedules in newspaper to make them accessible and responsible to the public at large. It sounds very democratic to have this openness but does seem a bit irresponsible and dangerous. Why was this the state of affairs for presidents, and why did an assassination attempt on a sitting president change anything? When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Thus began the United States Declaration of Independence. One of the causes detailed later is as follows. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. In post-revolution America, monarchy was a dirty word. To his enemies, the second president, John Adams, was called derisively his rotundity, the Duke of Braintree, and there were accusations that he would just as likely hand the presidency over to his son rather than leave office peacefully. Adams was not the only one accused of monarchical ambitions. After unprecedented use of the presidential veto power, Jackson was dubbed King Andrew I in the press. In the aftermath of the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln was renamed Abraham Africanus I. This insult has remained a popular one in American society. In the 21st century, we have had King George the Younger and Emperor Obama. In other words, it was an insult for the presidents to be compared to a monarch, and as a result, Congress and the president worked to avoid the traditional trappings of monarchy. One of the most visible trappings is, of course, the royal guard. Think about the famous monarchies of today. Look at tourists who visit London. What is one of their favorite tourist attractions to take photos with and post all over social media? That's right, the Royal Guard at Buckingham Palace. The great big black hats with the weird chin strap, distinct red coats, and their signature stiff posture. 
The King's Guard in Thailand is modeled after the British Royal Guard. The French had their guard corps, and ancient Roman emperors always had their Praetorian guards. Even Emperor Palpatine, perhaps the most powerful force user in the galaxy far, far away, had a royal guard. After the ratification of the United States Constitution, there grew a myth, or perhaps more genuinely, a belief in the American people that the United States government was of an exceptional nature. Europe in the old world was a place of monarchs and dictators who feared their subjects and required armed protection at all hours of the day in case their mistreated subjects finally snapped and decided to do something about it. The American chief executive was exceptional, and their people were proud that the president did not require an armed guard or any presence of the regal trappings of the old corrupt world of monarchy. If the president accepted protection, it would be proof positive that America was no different from the despotic regimes in Europe. The president served at the privilege of the people and had nothing to fear from them. Accepting a guard would break the perception of American government exceptionalism, and no amount of safety was worth that. Plus, no one would actually assassinate a president that could just as easily be impeached or voted out in the next election, right? Don't know the manners of good society, eh? Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, old gal, you sockdologizing old man trap. I will admit that I do not understand this line, which is a testament to how comedy can evolve over the years, as this was the hit line in Tom Taylor's three-act play, Our American Cousin. From its premiere in New York in 1858, throughout its run at the Ford's Theater in 1865, the line never failed to kill the crowd of theater goers. I should specify that I mean that figuratively. The line was known to elicit the largest burst of laughter from the crowd in the whole play. That was why the actor, John Wilkes Booth, used the sound of laughter from this line to cover up the sound of a gunshot as he ended the life of President Abraham Lincoln in the first successful presidential assassination attempt in United States history. On the date of April 14, 1865, President Lincoln and his wife, Mary Todd, were celebrating Good Friday and the surrender of Robert E. Lee at Appomattox Courthouse five days earlier. The surrender had essentially, though not fully, won the Civil War for the Union. President Lincoln had been assigned a guard for the duration of the Civil War thanks to the tense atmosphere of the warring nation. At least one attempt on the president's life had already been foiled by luck as the gunman had missed and only hit the president's hat when his horse spooked. Despite this attempt, Lincoln was fairly flippant about his protection, and his guard only consisted of four local policemen who were assigned one at a time to guard the president. On the night of the assassination, it is believed that the president's guard had left his post to grab a drink. Despite the assassination of President Lincoln, attitude toward a presidential guard changed little. Andrew Johnson was protected for a time to ensure no further attempts by the South to destabilize the Union occurred, but once the war was fully concluded, so too were the presidential guard. This might seem strange to those of you who know that the paperwork to establish the United States Secret Service sat on President Abraham Lincoln's desk on the night of his assassination, and the service was eventually established on July 5, 1865. However, the 1865 Secret Service had nothing to do with protecting the president and was instead a special investigative unit under the auspices of the Department of the Treasury. At this moment in time, in 2019, it is believed that approximately $70 million worth of U.S. currency in circulation is counterfeit. This may sound like a lot, but it only counts for approximately one counterfeit note for every 10,000 genuine notes, which means only around 0.01% of U.S. currency is counterfeit. 
This estimate comes from the U.S. Department of the Treasury and is based on the seizure rate per year of counterfeit currency, so it might not be exact, though it is likely quite accurate. This ability to keep counterfeiting in check is a testament to the security measures and due diligence performed by the Department of Treasury, Homeland Security, and various law enforcement agencies. For the first hundred-odd years of American history, counterfeiting was far less under control. From 1775 to 1779, the Continental Congress issued approximately $250 million worth of their own continental currency in order to help fund the Revolutionary War. By 1780, that money was worth one-fortieth of its face value, and even pro-revolution merchants stopped accepting the currency as it was no longer worth the paper on which it was printed. If you have heard or seen the musical Hamilton, the line, Local merchants deny us equipment assistance. They only take British money, so sing a song of six pence. This is what Lynn was referring to, and it represents the utter failure of the first monetary system of the United States of America. After the Constitution was passed, the new Treasury Secretary helped reform the monetary system with the passage of the Coinage Act of 1792. That established the dollar as the basic unit of account in the country. However, the currency issues did not end with the establishment of the dollar and the new act. Inflation will always be an issue for a new and growing country. This was to be expected and can be combated to a degree through creative measures. By the time of the Civil War, the real issue impacting the viability of the dollar was counterfeiters. By the end of the Civil War, it was estimated that somewhere between 33 and 50 percent of all U.S. currency in circulation was counterfeit. Combating the counterfeit currency became one of the top missions of the Department of the Treasury. In order to investigate and capture counterfeiters, it was proposed that a special investigative unit would be established for the purpose. The bill to establish the agency was one of the last that President Lincoln ever signed on April 14, 1865. The agency that the bill created would be dubbed the United States Secret Service. On July 5th of that year, the agency was officially established with the sole purpose of investigating and capturing currency counterfeiters. By 1867, the Secret Service had proven very effective, and counterfeiting had largely come under control. The agency was praised in the press for the good work, and they were awarded in the form of an expanded jurisdiction to investigate mail theft, bootlegging, smuggling, and fraud. In 2014, Congressional Research published a report titled, The U.S. Secret Service, History and Missions. The following is a quote from that report. The original mission of the service was to investigate the counterfeiting of United States currency. This mission has been expanded throughout the agency's history through presidential, departmental, and congressional action. At times early in the agency's history, Secret Service agents conducted investigations that were not related to financial system crimes. Examples include the investigation of the Ku Klux Klan in the late 1860s and counter-espionage activities in the United States during World War I. This quote gives a concise description of the mission and how the service grew from that initially very narrow mission. As the Secret Service operated out of the Department of the Treasury, it was monitored and accountable to the executive branch, which made it a valuable tool of the president and one of his arguably two most powerful cabinet members. One really quick tangent I found interesting in my research was that the second chief of the United States Secret Service was named Hiram C. Whitley, and he was appointed by President Ulysses S. Grant. The reason I find that interesting is that President Grant's first name was Hiram, what are the odds that of all the people he could have appointed, it was someone with the same fairly uncommon first name? Anyways, tangent over. The Secret Service's original purpose, then, was investigating counterfeit currency and enforcing counterfeit laws. 
It has since expanded to safeguarding the payment and financial systems of the United States, similarly to how our currency system has evolved since 1865. This is the reason that the United States was investigating that Russian credit card hacker in the episode of Darknet Diaries that inspired Henry to ask about the Secret Service in the first place. The Secret Service may never have expanded their focus to their second mission of protection, if not for a series of events in 1894. Before we get to those events, we should probably put them into context. Following the Civil War and into the 1870s, the United States entered the period in its history known as the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age was a period of unprecedented economic growth and expansion of major cities. The economy grew at its fastest rate in U.S. history, and Chicago, for example, saw its population explode, growing 10 times larger from 1870 to 1900. Under this impressive growth, however, was great inequality. The rich kept getting richer, the poor poorer, and immigrants who were attracted to the promise of a growing economy found hard times when they arrived. These forces came to a head with the Panic of 1893. Panic of 1893 was a serious economic depression that began just after the start of Grover Cleveland's second term. Thanks to this timing, President Cleveland was blamed for the panic and he quickly became perhaps the most hated sitting president in American history to that point. The White House was flooded with death threats. In the early days of the Republic, these death threats may have been treated with a bit more nonchalance, but after the successful assassination attempts on Presidents Lincoln and Garfield, it was not as easy to dismiss. President Cleveland continued without a guard until 1894, when the United States Secret Service discovered a conspiracy to assassinate the president by a group of Western gamblers, anarchists, or cranks in Colorado. While the investigation continued, the United States Secret Service dispatched two agents to tail the president in a buggy on a part-time basis in order to protect him from the assassins. The presence of Secret Service agents outraged Cleveland's political opponents and much of the population. Bodyguards were viewed as a sort of barrier erected to set the president apart from the population, and that was not something that the leader of the free people should do. As a result, Cleveland dismissed the agents for a time. As death threats continued to pour into the White House, Frances Cleveland, the First Lady, insisted that security at the White House should at the very least be increased. When Cleveland had assumed office, a mere three police officers were routinely stationed at the White House, more to keep the peace in a popular area of Washington, D.C. than specifically to protect the president. This security force rose to 27 officers, and Secret Service agents were brought in to supplement these officers and provide protection for the president on an informal part-time basis, including when the president traveled. This informal post marked the beginning of the Secret Service's protection mission. It only started thanks to the discovery of an assassination plot that never came to fruition being discovered as part of their investigative mission. For the remainder of President Cleveland's presidency, the Secret Service provided the informal protection, and this protection may have contributed to the president surviving his tenure in office. The Gilded Age, the Panic of 1893, the third political party system, and Cleveland's second term in office all ended in 1897 with the inauguration of William McKinley. One thing that did not end, though, was the Secret Service's part-time responsibility of protecting the president. Presidential protection continued to be seen as a low priority and a permanent bodyguard for the president still seemed like bad democracy to the American people as the 19th century came to a close. Despite that feeling, it can sometimes be difficult to put the genie back on the bottle, so McKinley continued to be protected on an informal basis. Who better to protect him than the people who had so capably protected his predecessor? As a result, it was common for Secret Service agents, often only two of them, 
to accompany the president when he traveled and to give a quick security screen to anyone who approached the president. Unfortunately, this process was still rather informal and was relaxed for a summit that the president attended in Buffalo, New York in 1901. The summit took place on a hot, humid day, and all the attendees were sweating profusely in their formal attire. It was decided that attendees could keep a handkerchief in their hand in order to wipe the sweat away from their brows, a situation that typically was not allowed as you were supposed to keep your hands clear when you were with the president. Handkerchiefs may not be very large, but they are big enough to conceal a handheld pistol. Leon Zolgos waited patiently in the line until it was his turn to approach. President William McKinley extended his arm to shake the anarchist's hand, but Leon instead pointed the gun hiding underneath his handkerchief and shot the president twice. Despite two Secret Service agents in attendance and a line of police officers right next to the president, President William McKinley was still the victim of poor security and died eight days later of blood poisoning. After President McKinley's death, his vice president, Theodore Roosevelt, was sworn into office. Wanted to make sure the president was safe, Congress requested for the first time that the Secret Service provide protection to the president. A few months later, in 1902, the Secret Service assumed full-time responsibility for the protection of the president for the first time. The protection continued to be paid for from a portion of the Department of the Treasury's overall budget until the Sundry Civil Expensive Act of 1907 was passed in 1906. This act provided funds for the specific purpose of protecting the president. These funds had to be approved annually, but they did give congressional assent to the protection mission of the Secret Service. As the Secret Service increased their protective measures, President Teddy Roosevelt wrote a letter to a senator that stated he considered the Secret Service to be a very small but very necessary thorn in the flesh. Of course, he wrote, they would not be the least use in preventing any assault upon my life. I do not believe that there is any danger of such an assault, and if there were, as Lincoln said, though it would be safer for a president to live in a cage, it would interfere with his business. The Secret Service's protection mission has continued to expand as needed ever since. In 1908, the presidential protection was extended to the presidential elect, which was good considering in 1933, the president-elect Franklin Delano Roosevelt was very nearly assassinated. In 1913, Congress authorized the permanent protection of the president and president-elect by the Secret Service with the Treasury Appropriations Act of 1913. In 1917, Congress extended the presidential protection to include the president's immediate family, and in 1951, the vice president also started to receive protection. I won't go through each date that the protection was expanded, but one that is quite interesting is that it was not a federal crime to attempt to assassinate a president until 1965 two years after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The Secret Service continued to operate from within the Department of the Treasury until 2003. In the wake of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, the Department of Homeland Security was established in 2002, and on March 1, 2003, the Secret Service was transferred to the Department of Homeland Security. The transfer to Homeland Security did not disrupt the Secret Service's two missions. Instead, it aligned it with the mission of the Department of Homeland Security, which is the protection of the nation's leaders, financial, and critical infrastructure. As the Secret Service was essential to protecting the leaders and financial infrastructure, it made sense to put them into this new department of the executive branch. Over the next five years, the Secret Service's investigations led to nearly 29,000 criminal arrests for counterfeiting, cyber investigations, and other financial crimes. 
98% of those arrests led to convictions and led to the prevention of a potential loss of more than $12 billion. Since then, the Secret Service has remained integral to national security. And as you probably can guess, as George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump are all still alive, their protection mission has been successful as well. And that is a story of why the Secret Service protects the president and investigates financial crimes. They started out as a special agency with a mission to get out of control of counterfeiting under control. Proved so effective that their jurisdiction was expanded to include all financial crimes, uncovered a plot to kill the president, signed agents to protect the president on a part-time basis while still focusing on their investigations, were upgraded to full-time protection, and just continued to expand as they proved so capable at their jobs. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Why Is That podcast. If you have, there are two ways that you can support the show. First, and most importantly, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app, whether that is Podcast Republic, Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever else podcasts are streamed. Second, you can leave a rating and review on your favorite app. I don't just mean an Apple Podcasts. Many apps have the capability now, and it really helps grow the show. Anyways, you can find us on social media at Why Is That Pod, and thank you for listening. Until next time, cheers.